When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared Business. Today we're featuring Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, who in conversation with his long-term co-author John Kay and the Conservative MP Jesse Norman discuss the phenomenon of radical uncertainty, the things that are so uncertain we can't even fathom. It's a really fascinating conversation and it was recorded in February 2020, just before the pandemic kicked off. And this will be the last of our archive episodes for a while. We've got some cracking guests coming up in the next few weeks, including Sadia Zahidi, the Managing Director of the World Economic Forum, and George Kell, who worked with Ban Ki-moon, UN Secretary General, on founding the ESG movement. And he'll be in conversation with Linda Yu. So do stay tuned. But now, let's go to the episode. To many questions, the right answer at the very beginning is to say, I don't know. The vital thing is that new and open experiences that we couldn't imagine before are the essence of what makes life worth living. And that's why radical uncertainty is a big plus, not a minus. Hello, I'm Jesse Norman. I'm the Member of Parliament for Hereford and South Herefordshire, and welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm here with Mervyn King, former Governor of the Bank of England, and John Kay, Professor of Economics who's held chairs at London Business School, the University of Oxford, and the London School of Economics. They're the joint authors of Radical Uncertainty, Decision-Making for an Unknowable Future. Hello. Good. Hello. I'm I'm already thinking this is the second in a a series, the first of which was called The British Tax System. Exactly. That was published 40 years ago. And John and I discovered that quite independently, we'd come to the view that radical uncertainty, that is uncertainty which you cannot express in a quantitative form by attaching probabilities to various outcomes, was so important to thinking about our economies. And we'd independently come to this view that we thought we should celebrate the 40th anniversary of the British tax system by writing another book. And so we have. I'm hesitant to say that the tax system has evolved to the point of a certain degree of uncertainty itself. But uh, no, let's not go there. Can I just ask a question about just about the book itself? Obviously, having written a book together before, what was the process of writing it? Did one of you draft chapters? Did you take chapter each? Or well, the big change yes, has actually been the, the arrival of the cloud. Mm. So you have a single manuscript on which two authors can work at once. And that's a transformation in the way in which two authors can work together. Whereas I remember 40 years ago, it was exchanging bits of paper with each other and not being sure which was actually the the working manuscript at any particular time. Yes, change control becomes much easier. And for much of this process, John and I would have weekly Skype calls where we could talk about the book and what we were thinking and how we should develop the arguments. And as John said, the great virtue of the cloud is that we could either edit things independently and then see where it was convenient what the other had written or actually edit jointly at the same time when we could both see on a screen wow. in being in different countries yes uh, what was what we were editing too how exciting so you could be doing uh, as it were talks and lectures in different places and yet at the same time collaborating on the book Yes, and actually seeing each other working on the same page of a manuscript. Yes, 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 yes. What's Kay doing here, for goodness sake, correcting that? Yeah, you can see that. What, what was the, did you find yourselves bringing different interests to the table? You obviously had a shared overall interest, but did you, for example, say, well, I really want to write something about the financial system, uh, Mervyn, and you, John, about, you know, uh, accidents of choice under uncertainty? No, I don't think it was that. I mean, what struck me going through this whole process was that John and I never had a disagreement about any of the underlying arguments about what was uncertainty and how to think about it. And we had different experiences and backgrounds so that John brought a lot of his experience of business economics and working with businesses to this process. 
and I had seen my experience with financial markets at the Bank of England. So we, we had different backgrounds that had motivated our interest in the subject. But actually, quite independently, we come to the view that it was extremely important to try to understand the significance of uncertainty when you couldn't pretend that you had tamed uncertainty by attaching numbers to it, yes. and in which people thought they could price uncertainty or risk yes. exactly yes. by attaching numbers to it. And I think that understanding was what propelled us through the book uh, all the way through from the beginning where we define radical uncertainty to the end where we distinguish again between risk and uncertainty and encourage people to think that if you plan carefully, you can avoid risk, but you should embrace uncertainty. Because, of course, it's an um, extraordinarily widespread problem. It's an endemic feature of human life. It is, and I think that when John and I actually mention at the beginning of the book the challenge that most non-economists think, well, it's obvious that the world is radically uncertain, whereas most economists feel that this threatens the way they go about analysing the world because they want to pretend almost that what people do is to maximise and calculate very carefully the consequences of any particular course of action in terms of precise numbers. And, of course, that's not how any of us really think. No, but, John, I mean, the formalisation of economics over the last 50 years has had many benefits as well, has it, it has. not? has. Uh, and there are huge pluses and minuses in this. The problem really is people believing that their economic models are telling, are, as it were, a true story about the world, rather than, as we think of them, they're uh, parables or stories. And uh, there's uh, inevitably judgment experience involved in deciding which model, if any model, is relevant to a particular problem. This is a way in which economics is really, I think, rather fundamentally different from certainly the harder of the natural sciences. Yeah, it's not like physics. You can't say, as it were, um, Alpha Centauri is here and we can predict right now where it'll be in a thousand years' time. Exactly. And an example we use right at the beginning of the book was NASA sending a shuttle messenger for orbit round Mercury. And that spacecraft travelled for seven years, orbited various planets several times before they nudged it into orbit around Mercury. And it ended up exactly where seven years earlier NASA had expected it to be. And we point out that this is possible because we understand the equations of planetary motion and have non known that for some time. We know they're stationary, that is, they don't change. The laws and of physics don't evolve. The, the laws of physics don't evolve in this kind of way. And also the, um, the motion of the planets is not affected by what we think about it. Whatever we think we know about the orbit of Venus, Venus goes on orbiting in the same way, yes. unchanged. Right, so before Kepler and Newton, the question of, as it were, where Venus was was an untamed problem. Now it's been tamed, but there are some problems that can never be tamed. I think, to, in terms of economics, the irony is that in many ways it's the most abstract and theoretical parts of economics which have turned out to be the most useful because they are parables, as John said, about how to think about the world. The difficulty comes when people think that they're writing down economic models which describe how the world functions. Mm. And, it, and they don't, because the world is constantly changing in terms of economics. Human behavior is evolving. We are confronting problems we've never seen before. We are producing goods and services that people didn't imagine uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago, there, this constant innovation is what makes it impossible to pretend that economics can give you precise forecasts of what will happen. But where economics is incredibly helpful is in enabling you to think about the challenges that you face. You know, is free trade a good thing? Do, do markets operate in such a way that a change in the price will always clear the market to balance supply and demand. Mm. Just ha to get insights into how to think about an economic problem, that's where a, a trained economist can bring a great deal of value to a problem. But where they don't bring value is where they pretend that they are scientists and therefore can give you quantitative forecasts 
of what are likely to happen in the future. Yes, and uh, sorry, John, there are, there's a distinction we make between, and other, other people have made between puzzles and mysteries. And when we talk about the motion of Venus, before Kepler, that was a, a, a puzzle which had not been solved. And now it is solved. And we know what the answer to that is. And uh, we discovered that people in different subjects, in different practical subjects, really all have this distinction between puzzles, which are well-defined problems, where you know exactly what the problem is, and you know what the solution is when you've arrived at it, and mysteries, which are often ill-defined, and where you may not know, even after events have panned out, what the correct solution is. And people have talked talk in other subjects about tame and wicked problems, about epistemic and aleatory uncertainty, and so on. And they really mean very much the same thing in these ways. There are things that you can pin down and solve, and there are things which you can never pin down in that kind of way. And that's obviously very important to understanding what the potential impact of things like artificial intelligence on the way we think about these kind of problems is as well. And it goes back, as you, as you illustrate, to an academic argument almost between, on the one hand, uh, John Maynard Keynes and Frank Knight, and then on the other hand, Frank Ramsey and uh, Definetti. Do you want to just give us a sense of how that argument panned out? Um, if you go back exactly a century, or 1921, uh, both Knight and Keynes published books about uncertainty. Um, Keynes wrote a treatise on probability. Knight's book was called Risk, Uncertainty and Profit. And what both of these authors emphasized uh, was, first of all, that there was a distinction between risk and uncertainty. Risk in their terms you could define probabilistically, uncertainty you couldn't. And both Knight and Keynes made the very important point that it was the existence of uncertainty which created opportunities for entrepreneurs and for people to make profits in a capitalist economy. Uncertainty was, in this very real sense, the driving force uh, of innovation in a market society. Yes, and, and, but what's fascinating is that Knight takes it into a theory of entrepreneurship yeah. Whereas Keynes takes it into a theory of animal spirits and... And macroeconomics, yes. yes. Although, interestingly, Keynes said much the same thing as well. And I think I can get remember the exact phrase, if we could uh, describe these things probabilistically, the spirit of enterprise would fold and die. Right. But economists liked quantities, they liked quantification, they liked risk as the expression of a mathematical formulation. And that was why... In your view, that was one of the powers that were driving the mathematization of, of economics? Absolutely. Yeah. And this distinction between risk and uncertainty got essentially abolished by economists after the Second World War. And Milton Friedman famously wrote about, uh, about Knight, saying Knight made this distinction between risk and uncertainty, risk which could be described probabilistically, uncertainty when which couldn't. And Friedman went on, I shall not refer further to this distinction because I do not believe it is valid. We may treat people as if they assign probabilities to every conceivable event. Yes, and then they went and, and tried to pretend that Knight had never actually made the distinction in the first place. Absolutely. It's an astonishingly so, stupid yes. thing in retrospect when you consider how productive that idea is. Well, what happened, I think, was that people forgot that these statements about we can assume that people have subjective probabilities over all possible outcomes. They says, well, yeah, let's do that and let's go on to model something interesting about the world. And they were so enthusiastic about saying, we can describe the world in terms of our equations mm -hmm. and we can now go out with statistical methods and estimate numbers that we can put into those equations mm -hmm. and then turn the handle of a computer. This was very seductive. I mean, John and I, I think in our days as undergraduates and graduate students, were seduced, I think, by this approach. It was very exciting to think that we could use our... And it gave you tools. It gave I you mean, tools, and you can try to write down models of how the world works. The trouble is that when there are things out there that you can't even imagine today, and when things can happen where, you, it's, frankly, it's impossible to attach probabilities to it, we've had no experience of these events, or it's just impossible to know, then you can't write this down in the form of equations. You can't write an equation if you can't imagine what the equation is about. And you can't find numbers either to put in. 
And so what people did was to go down the path in which they were so determined that we can express everything in terms of equations and numbers that you ignore all the phenomena that you can't express in the form yes. of an equation and you make up numbers for those things that you'd yes. like to put in to the equations just so that you can turn the handle of the computer and get something out. But it's very, it's very often the case, isn't it, the pioneers are more philosophically nuanced in the way they think about what they're doing and conceptually, as it were, um, open to the possibility of alternatives than their mannerist successors who get thoroughly captured by the discipline. And I think that's true here too. And uh, Jimmy Savage, who was the Chicago statistician, who is the author of a lot of this kind of thinking, said in terms that this only applies in what he called small worlds, essentially things that you can describe in terms of puzzles. And he went on to say it is absolutely ridiculous to think that you could apply this to, to large worlds in which things are not completely specified in that kind of way. I mean, but as you're saying, that yes. didn't stop people going ahead and doing it and, anyway. And, and having thoroughly successful careers, yes, PhDs, indeed. Nobel Prizes and all the rest of it. Um, there are many different ways in which a problem or an uncertainty can be radically uncertain, isn't it, in a way, isn't it? I mean, it, as I understand it, um, from the way you've described it, it can be unimaginable, it can be non-computable in some way, it can be the result of a set of interactions that are so complex that um, even if you could attach probability to the, to the individual ones, you couldn't to the whole interaction. It, it covers a wide range, and I think basically we think of radical uncertainty as capturing any kind of uncertainty that cannot be expressed in terms of a list of all the possible future outcomes to which you can attach probabilities for each of those outcomes. And as you say, at one extreme, there can be something that it's impossible to envisage or imagine today, and then down the road we discover that it did exist. The iPhone, for example, might have been impossible to imagine 50 years ago. But there can be other things where, of which I think the coronavirus problem we're facing now is quite a good example, where it was possible to say, well, we know that these viruses can exist, they can come out. It's quite likely that over a long period we will experience one of these viruses which can mutate and be transmitted from human to human. Quite likely that the part of the world it might come from is, is China. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you could say, well, we know when it will come or that there's a 10% chance that it will come next year is absurd. No one could possibly know that or have that information. And it's not remotely helpful to pretend that we do. And the kind of virus it is, we knew nothing about. Mm. So most of the important things that we would want to know about, we didn't. We knew something, but nowhere near enough. And that, I think, is characteristic of most of the practical problems that policymakers face, that we as a society face, but also we as individuals face too, thinking about how much do we save for our retirement, where there are plenty of people who will give you a spreadsheet to fill in and tell you what you should save you know, £152 a week for your pension. But frankly, in order to calculate that number, you have to give them information that you couldn't possibly know. You know, what will inflation be in the future? What will my income be in the future? We don't know is the answer. And I think one of the key things in, in, in the book is that to many questions, the right answer at the very beginning is to say, I don't know. And to admit that, and then to ask, well, what what information do we have? What is the nature of the problem? What are the principles that should guide us in making decisions in a world of un radical uncertainty? To which the idea of resilience, robustness, keeping options open, these are the key things that you need to do when you're confronting a problem where you cannot simply hand it over to a computer. And... If I understand you, the nature of the problem itself can mutate. I mean, the question of whether you could predict a coronavirus is one thing. But once a coronavirus is beginning to spread, then you start to have epidemiological models, etc., that might give you a handle on what the rate of growth is, etc. Yes, that's right. And the coronavirus illustrates, one of the things it illustrates is that people use the words like, likelihood, confidence, probability, almost interchangeably, and they're all, in fact, rather different. The coronavirus is something, something like this was likely, 
but to say what was the probability that the coronavirus would break out in Wuhan in, in December 2019. That's a ridiculous question. No one has the slightest idea about that. And you cannot frame that kind of thing in probabilistic terms. And you know even better than we do from politics that the confidence with which someone expresses a view is very different from the likelihood or probability uh, of I, that event. One sometimes, one sometimes thinks of um, all members of parliament as a, a combination of bombast, um, imposter syndrome, you know, wafer thin levels of expertise. And actually, in some respects, it's a, it's a purely amateur in the best way activity. It can't be captured by any professional discipline, but it has to be carried on as well and in that sense as professional as it can be. Um, so I, I remember when you were on the Treasury Committee, and I would appear in front of you, that sometimes I was asked a question and I would respond by saying, I don't know. And some of your colleagues on the Treasury Committee were outraged by this. I hope I would never say that. No, you didn't. Yes. <laughs> some of your colleagues were outraged and said, well, what do you mean you don't know? And I'd say, well, I don't know. And they would say, but it's your job to know. And I would say with great respect, it isn't. I'm not, it's my job not to pretend that I know things that not only I do not know, but with but great respect, nor do any of you. And we need to acknowledge the fact that there are some things that can happen that none of us know about. I recall you saying with great respect. I'm not sure I recall you meaning with great respect. <laughs> I, think, I think someone who uses the term with, with great respect yeah. means precisely the opposite. Quite, quite so. Um, uh, but let's actually take the, the political economic moment, because obviously one of the things that must have been sitting behind your minds was 2008 the simultaneous likelihood of a bank crash and yet its unpredictability and, in that sense, improbability. Um, how do you read that in retrospect? So I think that one of the developments in financial markets, and particularly in financial markets, was a view that by creating more and more financial instruments and more and more complex financial instruments, we were moving towards a world in which basically we had tamed uncertainty because we could price every conceivable risk out there. And by doing that and creating a market for these instruments, then the people who could best bear the risk would buy these instruments and those who couldn't would be on the selling side. And, of course, what we learnt in 2008 was that people's beliefs about the numbers they had put into their models turned out to be totally false – and as a result, the individuals who had bought many of these instruments were the people who were least well able to bear the risks, not the most able. And people had persuaded themselves that they understood enough about what was going on to be able to price all these instruments. And even the regulations designed by international bodies, which said this is the amount of equity finance that a bank should issue so that it has some reserve against which it can absorb losses. All of the numbers that went into those calculations were basically meaningless. Mm. It was impossible to predict you know, when uh, we would learn that financial markets in instruments in mortgages would just suddenly overnight close. It, it has a, it, there is some similarity to the coronavirus in that we knew that in principle you can get bank runs if all the depositors or those supplying finance decide to not to roll over their finance. We knew that could happen, and we'd seen it before. People have put in place measures they thought made it less likely. But it could happen. But no one had any idea that in 2007 and then again in 2008, we would see essentially a collapse of the financial system on a scale that would cause mayhem in the economy as a whole. And that was the sort of thing that people had ignored and, and just forgotten, that disasters on this scale could occur. Of course, what they could have done, I, I suggest to you, is they could have predicted that if there was going to be a crisis, its effect would be unusually bad, at least in the British economy, because as yes. the Vickers report showed, uh, bank leverage, which had stayed more or less steady for 40 years, had rocketed in the previous seven or eight. Indeed. But the methods by which the regulators and the international regulations were designed did not capture in any sense the risks that could occur because they were so obsessed with producing detailed numerical models that they didn't step back and ask themselves a basic question. 
you know, could this happen or could it not? The best example is Northern Rock. Northern Rock was the best capitalised bank in Britain in 2007 under the new regulations that had been introduced from January that year. And the reason was that the regulations assumed that mortgage finance was totally safe because house prices only went up and it took no account of the risks that could occur on the funding side of a bank. So Northern Rock actually promised to return capital to its shareholders in the middle of 2007. And a few weeks later, <coughs> it literally ran out of money. It was a liquidity now, crisis that, to end that, all. that, I think, is, occurred because people felt, we've got this detailed regulation. As long as we comply with it, we're bound to be okay. And they weren't. There are so many things that were wrong with that. But the most fundamental one is believing that you could make some kind of pseudoscientific calculation of the amount of capital that a bank needed, and you couldn't. If you ask how much capital does a bank need in order to be sure it can meet its commitments, the answer is a lot. And you can't say very much more than that. And on that tantalizing and fascinating note, let's pause now for a quick break. Okay, I'm back. It's Jesse Norman. I'm with Mervyn King and John Kay talking about their fabulous new book on radical uncertainty. Uh, and specifically, we were touching on the bank crisis. Uh, of course, what is so fascinating, and you brilliantly talk about the bogus quantification at the center of this confusion of, of risk and uncertainty, uh, is that in the private sector, those risk-adjusted models were not just driven by uh, a view about economics and quantification. They were also driven by self-interest in a pretty serious way. And in a way, one would like to have thought that the public sector with a different set of incentives might have had a check in the way it thought about risk uh, from a regulation standpoint. Is that a fair comment? I think it's a fair comment. But the public sector has this disease of bogus quantification in some ways even more than the private sector that you're required, really, to produce impact assessments. There are cost-benefit analyses of all kinds of projects and the like. And I th the thing I, th I find frustrating about looking at all that kind of activity is I don't, think these th I don't think these kind of calculations have very much effect on actual decision-making, but they're providing an apparent objective rationale for decisions, which is, in fact, largely spurious. And if you ask people, and often transport is a, an issue we've talked about, if you ask the small number of firms of consultants who do these kind of exercises to come up with numbers, they will generally come up with numbers that are rather congenial to the people who commissioned the work in the first place. OK, I can't resist asking for a good example of that, John. That's uh, too pregnant and interesting an idea. Uh, uh, my bet noir on all of this is the Edinburgh tram. Edinburgh's where I come from, as you know. And this utterly ridiculous uh, project, which a back-of-the-envelope calculation will show you it doesn't make economic or commercial sense. But instead, millions of pounds has been spent on cost-benefit analysis, which justified what came out as an, an £800 million project. And now the project is proclaimed a success. It's a success in the sense that trams are, are running on it, but not in any other sense. And it's such a success in these terms that it's now planned to extend it. And, of course, you have another spurious uh, cost-benefit analysis which supports that. One of the things I'm, I'm trying to pioneer within the government is the hitherto paradoxical thought that we might have training for ministers in how to be a good client on big infrastructure projects. And I think what would lie at the centre of that is not just a familiarity with some of the key technical tools of the trade and their limitations, web tag, the green book, uh, project appraisal techniques, discounted cash flow and the rest of it, but also the very Kay Kingian idea that you should ask before you ask anything else – what is going on here? I think this is the fundamental point that because many of the decisions that have to be taken appear complex and difficult and involve a wide range of issues from trying to estimate construction costs, looking at the value of to passengers of changing transport projects, that all this just seems too much. And so people want to delegate it to people who will claim that they can produce a spreadsheet that contains all the answers. And this is a big mistake. And all my experience 
in policy at the Bank of England and internationally was that the most important questions to ask were always the most obvious, the simplest, and the questions that those people in positions of responsibility were often ashamed to ask because they didn't want to think other people to think that they were ignorant. Yes. And actually, the basic questions are fundamental. And in terms of com comprehending a situation of radical uncertainty, somehow one has to look at it and construct a narrative about what's going on. And the starting point is to say, so what is going on here? What are the big issues that are, are happening here that we have to grapple with? And in terms of, we take another project like HS2, then, you know, two of the, perhaps three obvious questions to ask, which aren't easy to come up with answers to, and impossible, perhaps numerically, are one, you know, what's the cost and why do we think the numbers that will be given by the experts or construction companies won't escalate rapidly in years to come? You know, how do we imagine where those costs will get to? It's a bit like having any refurbishment of your home done. You know, the first estimate you're given is always the lowest, assuming everything works out perfectly, but there's always something that goes wrong. So the cost escalates. How do you think about that? And you might have a consideration of market power Indeed. underlying that. Yes. And then secondly, how do we think about the value to the passengers? You know, will they value time saved? Will they not? What, what is the impact on passengers? Is there any evidence about how much people are willing to pay for time saved on a rail journey? And the third one is the, perhaps the biggest question of all. What is the impact likely to be on the economy and the country as a whole of significantly improving the transport links between A and B, London, Birmingham or London and Manchester, as opposed to alternative projects that you could build in other parts of the country? And are you going to turn you know, Solihull into a commuter belt for London? Or are you going to boost businesses in the Midlands because of their proximity to London by train? I know easy answers to these questions, but, you know, asking what is going on here, what are the big issues we should confront is more important and recognising the limitations of our knowledge than just delegating this to a group of so-called experts who will fill in numbers in a spreadsheet and give you an answer, which quite often they have constructed in order to fit what they think your preconceptions are. So you sound, it sounds as though imposter syndrome is kind of endemic here, and the sense is that people are unwilling to acknowledge that they don't know anything, unwilling to acknowledge it, the deep uncertainty of a problem, and might make very different decisions if the problem were presented to them in a different way or if they had a different understanding of what was really going on. I mean, it sounds to me, just to pick up the point you made, John, I mean, that if someone had actually done a model for the Edinburgh tram on the back of an envelope, it might have been a considerably more successful piece of uh, analysis than what actually took place. I think that is absolutely right. And if we go back to the HS2 case, there are really two questions which you identify quite quickly as being critical. One is, how much more will people pay to get a faster train? And curiously, right now, you can go to London, Birmingham, from Paddington, from Euston on a faster train or from Marylebone on a slower train. Have people asked that, done research on that question? And the second... So there are real preferences. Are just there, there are real preferences. You just haven't found them out. Uh, and there are several other places in Britain and around the world where you have people of this kind of choice. And the other is if you build a faster link between a larger conglomeration A and a smaller conglomeration B, does that do more for development in A or in B? And again, we can find out quite a lot of, from around the world of who that helps, and I fear that it is rather more in the direction of Solihull becoming a commuter town for London than it is in, the, in terms of London activities being direct diverted to Birmingham. And do you think that's very interesting? And of course, there is. I take it there's also wadges of industrial policy about how cities grow and how clusters and conurbations develop that would be helpful to thinking about such a decision? It'd be fascinating, yes. And the question of why some cities in Britain have been doing better than others. You know, for example, outside London, Bristol and Edinburgh probably are most successful cities. Well, we just need to ask why. Yes. And uh, well, I'm, I'm you can to, then conjecture some of the I'm, answers. I'm trying, to get a, I'm trying to build a new kind of university in Hereford dedicated to uh, technology and engineering. And the reason is because it's by far the most 
successful potential economic intervention and cultural intervention one could make in the marches. If you look at a city like Lincoln, medieval city, not so much bigger, it put a, a campus in and the result was to grow the city by 7 to 10% for 20 years. And I think it was the American Senator Moynihan who said uh, to build a successful city, just have a good university and wait 100 years. <laughs> I didn't know that. I'd like to avoid waiting 100 years. That's okay. That might outstrip my parliamentary time. Fear but, yeah, no, that's interesting. So one of the things one of the things that is most exciting about the book, and I, we haven't really touched on it, it would be lovely to talk about it now, is actually this very optimistic and exciting conception of human possibility that sits behind it. You get all the innovation that comes out of Knightian uncertainty, but you also get a stress on storytelling and narratives. I, I think this is, as we wrote the book, this came home to us as one of the most important aspects, that the attempt to corral uncertainty and, and capture it quantitatively works in very small areas. These small worlds can be useful in some cases, but it completely doesn't touch the most important areas of human life, which is why we should not be delegating decisions to computers. Computers can help us a great deal in what we do, but they're not, we, they shouldn't replace humans. And towards the end of the book, what we stress is that all the good things in life come from uncertainty. So everyone is brought up to believe that uncertainty is bad. We should sort of get rid of uncertainty. And certainly there are... Issues such as, uh, you know, risks to our financial investments that we need to think carefully about that can be damaging. But uncertainty as such is not all bad. And I like to talk to students when they uh, reach their graduation ceremony and say to them, if I could tell you today all the things that could happen to you and the probability that they will, you'd come out of this graduation ceremony so depressed the reason you should be excited about your future is precisely because it's uncertain. You don't know who your life partner will be. You don't know what career you'll be pursuing 15 years from now. Five you, years from now, I mean, these days. I mean, yeah. You don't know which country you'll be living in. These are not bad things. If you knew that all of those things today, then life wouldn't have anything exciting to offer. And whether it's something small, like meeting a new person, a friend, that changes your life or hearing a piece of music or reading a book that helps to change your life. The vital thing is that new and open experiences that we couldn't imagine before are the essence of what makes life worth living. And that's why radical uncertainty is a big plus, not a minus. So in a way, we make an intellectual mistake when we just think of it in terms of stress or anxiety or it's, as it were, human effect. Yeah. I mean, the point is very well made in the film Groundhog Day, where Bill Murray lives the same day over and over again. And to do that is so depressing that he tries to commit suicide at yes. the end of it and discovers he can't even do that because it's all pre-programmed. There is a key distinction here between risk and uncertainty to restore that distinction that Keynes and Knight made. And risk, in the way people use it in ordinary language, is risk is something bad. Risk is what you want to happen, not actually materialising. Uncertainty can be either good or bad. As Mervyn described, you go out in an evening, you're uncertain who you'll meet, whether the food will be good and so on, and sometimes it's better than you thought it was going to be and sometimes it's worse. And that's what makes life interesting and worthwhile. And so long as you have a secure reference narrative, that is, so long as you're protected against extreme risks... Uncertainty is something to welcome. And that was that Knightian insight that said it's uncertainty that creates innovation and possibility. So the basis, so, so in a way, on this view, the view of the state is to, as it were, immunize or reduce the extent possible those catastrophic risks that could be the result of uncertainty, but also to, to permit the kind of human flourishing that allows innovation and uh, success and the unexpected joys of a life well lived to kind of emerge as well. Absolutely. And I think one of the saddest aspects of the application of economics to globalization has been that although economics did anticipate qualitatively the kind of benefits that flow from globalization, it forgot that in some communities, 
the reference narrative that those people grew up with, which was, I'm in a town that I'm proud of. These are the traditional industries. I can follow my parents in the same employment. I want to live in this community, have particularly in the United States, been dashed. And it's become very difficult for people to live the life that they had expected and hoped to have. Mm. And so they have really suffered from that degree of change. And the governments in the US have been, state and national, have been unable to cope with that. They realized too late. And I think if economists had said there are some very good things that can come from globalization, but there are some groups that may feel they have lost out, and our task is not to throw out the benefits of globalization, but it's to try to square them with the need to provide that protection, that social safety net for those people who lose from it. Because the, the risk to the reference narrative is something we should take seriously. And one of the things, problems I have with some of the discussion in the intellectual debates in economics about free trade and free markets is the belief that somehow if the market says we should change, we should all accept it, even if it means my losing my job and the skills being made redundant. And we've got to realize that actually people have based their expectations about their lives on their certain skills they've acquired being valuable for a period. And it is it is not costless just to throw them onto the rubbish heap of the free market. And we don't have to accept as it were, a narrative of globalization that is disastrous for us as a country or for any country. Absolutely. We can say we can get the benefits, provided we realize that we need to take steps to understand what the implications are going to be for different communities and to you know, cushion the blow or to reduce the size of that blow to those communities. And that's just as important an aspect of policy as it is to recognize the potential benefit from greater competition. Uh, and markets. it's important to see it as this is not primarily or certainly not exclusively a matter of inequality, which is the way people currently often want to frame that debate. It's about the ways in which globalization and technology and immigration appear to threaten people's reference narratives. And that has left a lot of people feeling very uncomfortable and uneasy. And we've seen the political consequences of that. So if in America, you, for just to take the American example, you have a reference narrative about the family farm or about the frontier or about technology and about, uh, as it were, a, a life well lived uh, uh, in industry and those come under threat, then, of course, it can be utterly disastrous economically and crippling emotionally. And, and particularly in the United States, where communities are geographically so separated. It's easier, I think, in a smaller, more highly densely populated European country, where if one or two of the industries go under, then people may not have to move very far to find alternative employment. In the US, you could literally find deserted towns and communities and this is a tragedy to those people brought up there because their reference narrative has literally been dismantled. But also in this country, you have areas of the country where you had communities that were built around particular manufacturing industries or mining communities or whatever. Now, these communities are not now particularly poor. They're not deprived in conventional senses, but they've lost the kind of reference narrative, the sense of community that had kept them together. And these are where we've, um, we've been seeing the political upheavals. And, and in a way, a more, oddly enough, a more sophisticated economics and economics that talked about ideas of identity and purpose and meaning might itself be part of the official solution. Indeed, it should be, yes. You know, a sense of pride in what everyone can do is, is very important. I mean, in, in another area, which is the nature of education, trying to enable children to discover what it is they're good at. They shouldn't all be good at the same thing, but finding out what they're good at doing. The sense of self-esteem and a sense of pride. And if a community has pride in producing a particular thing, a particular industry, then if that's taken away, you can hand money and benefits and so on and try and retrain. But to recreate that sense of pride is much more difficult. And that does need to be taken into account. It's the full Monty rather than Groundhog Day, in a yes. way. Yeah. And, you know, what we've also done by sending half the population to university in their late teens is we're taking away the academically abler people from, from communities. 
to which they will, in very many cases, never actually return. And we haven't really thought... Well, having, been, having then, as it were, siloed them through finance and the professions. Yes, in many cases, not doing things that may actually be particularly valuable other than, other than to them. But we need to think about the effects of that in terms of divorcing these people from the communities from which they've come and the effect on the communities which have been, been left behind. In this. Well, of course, one always thinks of university as a place of intellectual awakening. But, of course, one of the things that comes out of the book, in a way, is that it may also be a place where minds are processed in a certain way, and economics is perhaps an example of that. It is. I think that many of the concerns that John and I have about the way economics is taught and the way people feel that if you're a really good economist then you have to have your models and equations etc that that as opposed to understanding and explaining what's going on in the world that that approach is actually common to almost all leading universities in the world at the postgraduate level and so there's a tremendous similarity in the way that people come out of masters and phd programs and they think they know what economics is about. Uh, and they, they think of it in terms of a set of techniques or tools as opposed to a set of deep insights into how markets work or don't work and the, how the world operates. We and created you picked that up, Jesse, in a very interesting way in your book on Adam Smith when you said economics now defines itself by reference to the methods it uses rather than the problems it solves. And I think that's a very, it's an a, observation very much to the point. Well, it, it, thank you. It's a, it's, a very, it's a very serious problem. If you think about just from a, government stand, a governance standpoint, you know, if, you're, if the people in government uh, uh, take an extremely technocratic view of the world, if they've all been educated in the same places and the same subjects, if they've got this mathematical general equilibrium type view of the world, um, don't be surprised if you get a certain sterility, lack of creativity and lack of willingness to step back and say, actually, do you know what? I really don't know what's going on here. Why don't we start thinking about it? Um, because those seem to be the natural correlates. And occasionally it's exactly that conformity of view that generates big mistakes. Mm. Uh, that uh, you know, More generally, we talk about the need to explore diversification in every dimension, whether it's your investments or whether it's in thinking about you know, the issues that arise in dealing with these big policy decisions. And the example we give in the book is that in the 19th century, everyone who studied agriculture could conclude that the most efficient crop for Ireland to grow was potatoes. So they all grew potatoes. And then when there came along a blight to potatoes, they were all bankrupted and people starved on a terrible scale. And that's because of the lack of any comprehension that if there are things that can happen that we can't easily imagine today, then keeping your options open, diversification is a very important part of a sensible strategy. You know, one of the things that set me off on some of the ideas in this book was going to a meeting at the Treasury, and was, this meeting was between a group of defence contractors on one side of the table and some Treasury economists on the other. And the people who came from the business side explained how uh, defence contracting was very risky, and they pointed to some of the big overruns and projects they'd engaged in. And the Treasury economists said, who'd all been to good universities and business schools educated in modern financial economics said but actually this risk is idiosyncratic it's completely diversifiable and you don't have to be paid any addition to the cost of capital for taking these risks and the business people of course looked <laughs> asked what, what kind of planet have these people come from <laughs> and i realized that they just meant completely different things when they were just talking about risk and uncertainty they were completely talking past yeah, each other they were talking past each other could I just um, – we'll need to tragically, because it's been an unbelievably interesting conversation, we're going to need to wind up. But can I just put a, a case study in a way to the theory that you've developed, gentlemen, which is Brexit, a, a moment of uncertainty, an inflection point from the UK's uh, perspective and indeed, of course, from that of the EU and the rest of the global economy and society and one in which anchoring narratives are going to be very 
important. And I, I wonder if there's any way we can think about this phenomenon, I don't mean in the matter of weeks or months, but over the longer term, that draws on the ideas you developed in the book. So I think this is quite a good example of the things that we were discussing. What should have happened was that the two sides should have said, of course, a reasonable person could come to one view or the other. My view is on this side. And here's my narrative to explain why I think in the long run, this will be the right decision. And the other side would say, well, I understand why you say that, but I have a different narrative, which explains why I take the opposite view from you. Instead, what we got were two sides to this campaign, both of which claimed to know precisely either that if we were to leave, the cost of doing so would be £4,300 per family worse off, or if we were to leave, we'd have £350 million to spend on the NHS without losing money on anything else. Both of these were products, I think, of a view that, gosh, we don't actually have a proper narrative to tell. So let's try and fool people by pretending that we know what the consequences are, either that you'll be much worse off if you vote to leave or that, you know, the NHS will be better off if we vote to leave it. On the other you hand. don't think it was people on both sides trying to crystallise something into a message in the spirit of narrative which people could understand? No, they, they were trying. They were producing these bogus numbers, so that you've got numbers on both sides. There's no sides redeeming way of thinking about up. it from either side. I, I don't think no, so. I, Whereas, had you ever heard people talking about Canada Plus or Norway Minus or um, WTO terms? Had you ever heard these phrases in public discussion before to the, the referendum? I don't think so. That's actually saying, in terms of narratives, what kind of relationships could we have with the rest of Europe and what kind of relationships would we want? So in a way, the great failure of leadership was not to create the circumstances in which the political system could have fully digested these ideas and these narratives and then come to a view which might have been in or out but would have yes, been exactly. a view which people could be more reconciled to. Yeah. And I think that people had run away from producing a narrative about the issues, say, to do with sovereignty and those people on the Remain side instead chose to make up numbers to argue that we should remain because they didn't seem to be able to produce a compelling narrative to explain why sharing sovereignty might be a good thing, etc., and those on the Leave side didn't really produce a narrative about what would be the position of Britain in the world and in Europe once we had left. And instead, you've got this, this attempt to produce false numbers. And that was what was so depressing about the campaign itself. You know, what's happened since is a different set of issues. But during the campaign itself, the debate was, in my view, at a lower level than the debate we had in 1973 when we voted to go in. Mm. When people did use phrases like trade creation and trade diversion to explain the consequences, even just on the narrow trade front, in, that they were talking – they didn't pretend to have numbers. What they said was these are the qualitative arguments that economics helps you to think through. And that was a good use of economics. By the time we got to 2016, economists had somehow given in to the temptation to produce numbers that no one could possibly believe in. Gentlemen, I'm afraid we'd better leave it there. It's a most gripping book. You've been wonderful people to interview, and thank you very, very much indeed. Thank, thank you, you, Jesse. It's a pleasure, Jesse.